Before we look at Matthew chapter 13, I'd like to make a couple of uh, preliminary remarks, and then I'd like to read an article. Uh, Just the other day, I was at Walmart. (laughs) I'm sure you have been in Walmart before. I'm just like you are. I got things I need to buy and do. And uh, I met a fellow there named Ronnie. You know, and Ronnie, a very, uh, very zealous religious man. You know, he was sending out a little card to everybody walking by. He was promoting every show on every radio, Christian radio station you could imagine. <laughs> um and so I asked him about uh, a few things about the blessed person and finished saving work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, I pray what I preach to him, the Lord will, will use to uh, give him an understanding. <laughs> the gospel's not a plan, beloved. It's not a plan. It's, it's a glorious purpose. <laughs> Oh boy, um, what a difference between that false gospel that's peddled up and down 59 and the true gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'd like to just show you a couple of verses that uh, greatly comfort me. Um, and while I'm turning there, I'll remind you, we, we had a, a speaker come to one of our conferences one time and he intimated, you know how when people hear the gospel, they say, oh, that's not fair. That's not fair. What, what if somebody was... You know, living in the middle of nowhere, like in the middle of the Pacific on a little island, and there's no church and there's no Bible and there's no message, and, 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 you know, they don't hear the, the gospel. That's not fair. And I had uh, a way of putting it, but I like the more succinct way of putting it. <laughs> if the Lord has one of his precious sheep on, on, on that island, one of his precious Lambs, he'll move the island <laughs> to where they're healed the gospel. Make no mistake about it. So let's look at a few <laughs> precious, precious portions of God's word. Um, not in any particular order, but these come to my mind. Uh, certainly they came to my mind as I was sitting there. Second Timothy chapter one. You know, Ronnie, he uh, was talking to me about the publican and the Pharisee. You know, the Pharisee, what darkness, what ignorance. That Pharisee said before the, the Lord, I thank you, God, that I'm not like other men. Oh, he thought he was something. And then the publican, <laughs> he was looking to the mercy seat. You know, that picture, that's a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he said, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And we can say all the more emphatically, can we not? Lord, be merciful to me, the sinner. Uh, Ronnie was confused. He said, I don't think that man was saved then. You know, he was caught up in, in time. And, you know, sometimes people will ask a, a brother or sister, uh, when were you saved? Almost kind of like an interrogation. You know, they, they're putting what you, what you believe on trial and they're going to be the judge and jury about whether or not you're a child of God or not. But, but, uh, I trust, you know, the answer to that beloved, when did the Lord save you? (laughs) 
God purposed to save me before the foundation of the world. <laughs> and in time, he called me with an irresistible call. I love the way the scriptures put it. A holy call. A holy call. It says in Second Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, and this is speaking about the gospel according to the power of God, who hath saved us, verse 9, and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Away with this false gospel that says that God has a plan to save everybody and that his sin-atoning death merely made salvation possible. And now it's up to you to do something to make what the Lord Jesus Christ did on the cross to work. What blasphemy. Nowhere from Genesis to Revelation will you find anything that intimates that God is like man. We make plans. <laughs> I'll have a plan and I'll make an attempt and I will fail. And I love the way uh, one brother designs and, and, and he is hoping this will bookmark God's word in your heart. The Lord Jesus Christ did not make an attemptment. <laughs> he made an atonement for sin. The once for all sacrifice of God's well-pleasing son. Now you note that order, beloved. It doesn't say who, who he called and then he saved. It says who he hath saved and called. Who he hath who hath saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Another portion comes to mind, Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1. Look there with me. The bottom just sort of drops out, doesn't it, beloved? The gospel, what a, what a glorious mystery. It must be revealed. We wouldn't believe it otherwise. It says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in his darling Son before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy without blame before him and love. And we could go on and on there. Uh, Acts. And then I think we'll, we'll conclude our, I mean, I trust as I'm comforting myself, beloved, you're, you're being comforted and looking at this with me. Acts chapter 13, verse 38. Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man, the God man, the Lord Jesus Christ, is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. Verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad, <laughs> mighty glad, and glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. That order is inspired, not just the words, the order. Men who do not have an understanding who are still left in their ignorance, they rest the scriptures to their destruction and they would like to force this to say as many as believed were ordained to eternal life. It doesn't say that, beloved. As many as were ordained to eternal life believed. Lord willing, I'm going to put this article in the bulletin. I don't know what I'll title it. 
I've copied it from a work that was published in the 19th century, and I thought it would uh, comfort us together uh, about the very fact that the Lord Jesus Christ came into the world to seek and save that which is lost, and he will find all of his lambs, all of his sheep. Now, there's a lot of them lost right now, but he's going to find them all, beloved. Make no mistake about it. Uh, Maybe I'll title this uh, The Refuge. There was a boy I once read of who lived in Ireland. He had been brought up a Roman Catholic, but he did not die one. This little boy was a very poor and miserably clothed. This, this little boy was very poor and miserably clothed, but a very clever, intelligent lad. A clergyman used to notice him creeping into his church, sitting at the further end of it, and he seemed to listen with all his ears to the sermon. He asked his clerk if he knew who he was, but he could tell him nothing. He kept on seeing him again and again, and the little boy used to run away directly after the sermon was over. One night, the clergyman was sent for to see a little boy who was dying in a cottage across the mountains. The clergyman went. When he arrived at the house and had entered the room where the dying child was, he saw in one corner of it this same little boy who used to attend so regularly his church. He was evidently dying. When he beheld the clergyman, he lifted up his hands and said, With his own right hand and with his holy arm hath he gotten himself the victory. Those were the last words that little boy uttered. He had forgiveness and went safe to heaven. Now there is one more thing. Death. We must all die. It is a happy thing for a Christian to die. It is the happiest thing that ever happened to such a one to die because there is a refuge. There is a refuge. There will be the wounds of Jesus and the bosom of Jesus both for us when we die. I heard of a person dying who thus spoke, I am too sick to live and I am too wicked to die. Sad words. I hope you and I shall not say so when we are on our deathbeds. Now I will read to you the other side, what a little dying child wrote, I believe, on her deathbed. Put your arms around me, mother. Draw your chair beside my bed. Let me lean upon your bosom, this poor, weary, aching head. Once I thought I could not leave you. Once I was afraid to die. Now I feel tis Jesus calls me to his mansion in the sky. Why should you be grieving, mother, that your child is going home to that land where sin and sorrow, pain and weakness no more come? She had a refuge. Tonight, we'll be looking at the last three parables that we see recorded for us in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 13. And if you would once again open your Bibles there with me, again, Matthew chapter 13, I'll begin reading in verse 44 through to verse 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a treasure hid in a field, the which when a man hath found, he hideth, and for joy thereof goeth and selleth all that he hath, and buyeth that field. 
Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a merchant man seeking goodly pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a net that was cast into the sea and gathered every kind, and gathered of every kind. Verse 48, which when it was full, they drew to shore and sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but cast the bad away. So shall it be at the end of the world. The angels shall come forth and sever the wicked from among the just and shall cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Jesus saith unto them, Have you understood all these things? They say unto him, Yea, Lord. Tonight, we're looking at the last three of the Lord's seven parables recorded in the 13th chapter of Matthew. Now, these last three parables that we're looking at tonight are only given to us in Matthew's gospel, and that's the parable of the treasure, the parable of the pearl, and the parable of the net. And again, they're only recorded in Matthew's gospel. Now, we know by our Lord's question in verse 51 that these parables were spoken to the disciples after our Lord had returned to, into the house he left in chapter 12. And he explained the parable of the sower, the parable of the wheat and the tares, and then he gave them these final three parables. And we know he spoke these to his disciples because of the Lord's question to them in verse 51. He said unto them, Have ye understood all these things? And the disciples, they said unto him in reply, Yea, Lord. And we read in verse 10 how that the disciples came and said unto him, Lord, why speakest thou unto them, un, unto the multitudes in parables? And in verse 11, he answered and said unto them, Because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it is not given. If it were not for God's grace, beloved, we wouldn't want, know one thing about the kingdom of heaven. Not one thing. Those mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, those very mysteries would have remained unknown to us had it not been revealed by His grace. And we see that by God's grace, the grace of God, these sinners, indeed all true sinners, come to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven in salvation. Our Lord says to His disciples, indeed to all His blessed people, it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. And that's by the grace of God, beloved. Make no mistake about that. And we know that the scriptures teach how that salvation is by the grace of God. And just the same as by his grace that he gives sinners a saving understanding of these things that pertain to the kingdom of God. The Apostle John records in his first epistle, in the last chapter, he records there in, in verse 20 of First John chapter 5. Verse 20, writing to God's people, he writes, Beloved, we know, we know. What do we know, beloved? We know that the Son of God has come and hath given us an understanding, that we may know him that is true, and we are in him that is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. And yet, the Word of God declares, the natural man, 
that man left to them to himself, the, the natural man, dead in sins and trespasses, receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. You see, the natural man is spiritually dead in trespasses and sins. And our Lord instructs us, just as he told Nicodemus, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He cannot perceive the mysteries of the kingdom of God. And the mysteries found in Scripture are such that a sinner would never have learned, would never have understood those blessed truths that adorn the gospel of God, the blessed doctrine of the Lord Jesus Christ, except they be born from above. I mean, if these things had not been revealed unto us, beloved, we would have never come to understand one thing about Christ being everything in salvation. Remember what Paul asked those believers at Corinth? Who maketh thee to differ from another? My friend, if you understand the mysteries of the kingdom of God, of who it is that maketh thee to differ from another, God's not only done something for you on the cross of His Son, but ever so blessedly He's done something for, for in you. Be sure of that. Paul further asks and presses the question, Who maketh thee to differ from another? And what hast thou that thou didst not receive? And so we see here again how that it's by grace ye are saved. For unto you it is given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. And the disciples came and said unto the Lord, Lord, why speakest thou unto them in parables? Why do you speak to the multitudes in parables? And his answer is simply this, because it's given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them, to the self-righteous, it's not given. Now we see here God's grace in giving us an understanding in revealing the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But we also see man's responsibility. And that may be seen all through the Word of God. You see, my friend, the Scriptures teach us, teaches us the sovereignty of God in, in dispensing His grace. But so too we see the responsibility of man. And the one does not negate the other. Yes, God is sovereign in giving His grace, but yet man is responsible unto God. You see, man is responsible to walk in the light that God gives him. And we see that here in this passage. Where does the sovereignty of God begin and the responsibility of man end? The Word of God, my friend. The Word of God. And after the Lord said, It is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. Notice what is said in verse 12. He says there, for whosoever hath, to him shall be given, and he shall have more abundance. But whosoever hath not, from him shall be taken away even that which he seemeth, seemeth to have. You see, my friend, men are responsible to walk in the light that they have. Does someone say, I know there's a God, but I don't know him? Oh, my friend, get in his word. Meet with his people and come with the hope of hearing from him through the preaching of the gospel of his son. In John chapter 9, John's gospel chapter 9, we see how that men are responsible to walk in the light that they have. 
And my friend, men are not only responsible for what they hear, but so too what they could have heard had they not neglected so many calls from the Lord's people to come and see their Savior. I mean, if they had so desired, many could have done that, but they had something more important to do. What a fearful thing that so many don't have time for God or to hear from his ambassador who preaches his very word. In John chapter 9, we learn of how our Lord Jesus healed this man who was born blind. And notice our Lord's words beginning with verse 39. John chapter 9, verse 39. And the Lord Jesus said, For judgment I am come into this world, that they which see not might see, and that they which see might be made blind. And some of the Pharisees which were with him heard these words. And remember, these are religious people. These are the know-it-alls who claim to know everything. And you know, you can't teach them a thing because they know everything about God. They, they claim to know everything about the Word of God. And they seemingly claim to know everything. And those studied, learned Pharisees said unto the Lord Jesus Christ, Are we blind also? And the Lord Jesus said unto them, If ye were blind, that is, if you admitted your blindness, if you admitted your desperate need, your emptiness, if you admit that, if you would admit that, you would admit that you're ignorant and blind. You should have no sin. But now you say, we see, therefore your sin remaineth. Remember, our Lord said, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. And these self-righteous religious Jews didn't see their ignorance. Sadly, in their mind and in their speech, they intimated that they knew everything. And so you see, my friend, we're responsible to walk in the light that God gives us. And in these parables, beloved, our Lord said unto you who believe, it's given to you, it's given to you to know these things, and that's by God's grace. But so too, men are responsible. Men are responsible to consider, to meditate, and to hear what the Lord has said. Now, the mysteries revealed in these last parables are revealed as a result of the Lord Jesus Christ coming into this world. So what are the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven? Well, the first mystery is the gospel. And you say, well, the gospel has been with us since before the foundation of the world. And yes, I realize that. But it wasn't always manifested like it's been manifest in these last days. And that, by the coming, by the appearance, by the incarnation of the Son of God and the manifestation of His finished saving work. The second mystery of the kingdom of God is how that God reigns in this world. Now, from this passage of Scripture, we see how that the kingdom of heaven is likened unto the good seed which is to be sown in all the world. Preach the gospel to every creature. God's kingdom, God's reign. Now, the kingdom of God is nearly equivalent to the church. And at present, the visible church, the visible world, is comprised of the tares and the wheat. But we know one blessed day, Christ's union with his invisible church shall be revealed, indeed consummated in glory, in purity, and in all her beauty. Now, let's look at these two things in these last three parables. First of all, the gospel. And then secondly, 
the kingdom of God's reign. Now, the gospel is represented by the treasure and the pearl of great price. Verse 44. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a, unto treasure hid in a field, the which when a man hath found, he hideth, and for joy thereof goeth and selleth all that he hath, and buyeth that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a merchant man seeking goodly pearls, who when he has, had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Now, there's two things alike seen in both of these parables. That is, we see one glorious truth about the gospel. Both these parables represent the gospel as something of great value, as being a treasure, as being a precious pearl of great price. Now, while in that day the people would have appreciated the value of a hidden treasure or the value of a precious gem, but beloved, what could be more valuable than the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? I mean, can you think of anything more valuable to you or to me and to men in general than the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? I mean, can you imagine what it would be like to be born in a world or live in a world where there was no gospel to be heard? What a horror that would be to never hear the gospel, to never have the gospel. And so, beloved, what could be more valuable to us than the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? Nothing. And when I think of treasure, and I trust when you think of treasure, you think of precious metals like silver and gold. And that brings to mind each piece of furniture in the tabernacle, of how each piece was overlaid with gold. And it makes one think about the table for the showbread, the candlestick, the altar of incense, and so too the Ark of the Covenant, and of how it was all overlaid with gold. And the mercy seat, mercy seat itself was a work of beaded gold. That's what the Word of God declares, how that the mercy seat itself was a work of beaded gold. And all that, of course, are pictures of the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work of salvation in the gospel. And that mercy seat, which was the place where the blood was sprinkled, was a place where the work of beaded gold, beaded gold. What comes to mind when you think about beaded gold? Isn't that a picture of our Lord Jesus Christ? Remember, he was beaten. He was wounded for our transgressions. And he was bruised for our iniquities, so that by his stripes we're healed. And that man took that hammer, he took that gold and started beating it and straightening it out, and he struck it again, again, and again. What a picture of the suffering of the Son of God. What a glorious picture of, of all the sufferings of the Son of God. And then that blood sprinkled on the mercy seat. What a picture of the sufferings of Christ and his blood that makes an atonement for the sins of his people. Herein is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation. The father sent his dear son to be the sin atoning sacrifice for our sins. The gospel is so indescribably valuable. And throughout the Old Testament, God claimed all the firstborn of Israel and he spared, he spared them when he delivered his people out of Egypt. And so he claimed out of the nation of Israel all that the firstborn 
that all the firstborn were his. But rather than take all the firstborn, he took the tribe of Levi. Now this tribe of Levi would be the tribe that would do the service in the tabernacle. And so he had Moses to take a census and to number all the firstborn and in the other tribes and then to number all the males in the tribe of Levi. And there was a difference of 273 firstborn. Now what does God do? What does he say about those 273? He says they've got to be redeemed. But how were they redeemed? They were redeemed by the shekel. That is, by the silver, silver of the sanctuary. And that makes one think of the, that passage in First Peter, does it not? By the manifestation of the gospel of God's Son coming into the world to save sinners, Paul could write clearly and plainly, Thank God, beloved. <laughs> Thank God. We're not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from our vain conversation received by the tradition from our fathers, but with the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You see, beloved, the gospel tells us about the person of Christ and of his precious blood. It tells us of his once for all sacrifice that puts away the sins of his people. And when I think of precious stones, I think of treasure made up of silver, gold, and precious gems, I, I think about the glorious fact that the Lord Jesus Christ is the rock upon which we must be built, God's precious, precious cornerstone. And then we read of the one pearl of great price. Now notice in verse 45, it says, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a merchant man seeking goodly pearls, who when he had found one, one, one pearl of great price. It says there, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. One pearl of great price. Beloved, there's only one gospel. There's only one Savior. There's only one faith. For there is none other name given among men by which we must be saved. None other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Now, certainly pearls are valuable today. But in that time, I would surmise they were even more valuable. And men risked their lives diving to great depths to the very bottom of the ocean floor to obtain just one precious pearl. And so we learn by our Lord's illustration how that the gospel is valuable. And the gospel shows you and I how it's true and of how that God may save sinners and yet at the same time by no means clear the guilty. Now that's a mysterious thing, is it not? how that God said he will by no means clear the guilty. And all of us are guilty. But nevertheless, the gospel shows us how he saves sinners, while at the same time, he will not clear the guilty. So how did he do that? My friend, he did that through Christ being made to be our substitute. God did that by dying in our place to satisfy to the uttermost his justice and his law. You see, the gospel shows us how that God is a just God. And don't you love that verse in Isaiah where the Lord tells us that he's a just God and a Savior and that there's none beside him. And that, so we might declare at this time God's righteousness, indeed declare at this time God's righteous Son, that through his sin-atoning sacrifice, the Father might be just 
and the justifier of every sinner which believes in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And beloved, that's revealed to us in the gospel. So both of these parables, that of the treasure and the pearl of great price, beloved, they both represent the gospel as something of great, great value. And secondly, both parables represent men willing to part with everything to have that which is supremely valuable. Both of them represent men as willing to part with all to have the treasure, to obtain the precious pearl of, of great price. And in both of these parables, our Lord says that the man sells all that he has. Now, it goes without saying that Christ cannot be purchased with money. And we know Scripture is not saying that for a moment. For when the Bible speaks about men buying this treasure, this pearl of great price, it speaks about buying without money and without price. And besides that, the gospel is for those who have absolutely nothing to pay with. Remember, our Lord, our Lord told that parable of how there was a certain creditor which had two debtors. The one owed 500 pence and the other 50. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. You see, the Bible never shows man as being able to purchase salvation. But what these parables are showing us tonight is that men are willing to sell everything they have because they recognize the value of the gospel. Uh, turn with me to Mark's Gospel, chapter 10. Mark's Gospel, chapter 10. And I'll begin reading there in verse 46. And it says there, As the Lord Jesus Christ went out of Jericho with his disciples and a great number of people, it says there, Blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat by the highway side begging. And when he heard that, when he, blind Bartimaeus, when he heard that it was the Lord Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, the Savior, Jesus, the Christ of God, have mercy on me. And many charged the blind man, blind Bartimaeus, that he should hold his peace. But he cried all the more. He cried a great deal more. Thou son of David, have mercy on me. And the Lord Jesus stood still and commanded him to be called. And they called the blind man, saying unto him, Be of good comfort. Rise, the Lord calleth thee. And then notice verse 50. And the blind man, casting away his garment, and remember, for a blind beggar, any garment would be of great value. But nevertheless, he cast away his garment and he rose and he came to the Lord Jesus Christ. No matter what, I've got to get to, to the Lord Jesus Christ. I've got to get to him alone who can do me good. And so we see how that these men in the parables were willing to sell everything. And they did sell everything to buy the field because then they would have the treasure. And they sold everything so that they could get that pearl of great price. John Gill observes that this parable represents the willingness of sinners. And he, he writes these words, the willingness of sinners to part with all that has been or is dear unto them, with their sins and self-righteousness, with their good names and characters, their worldly substance and life itself for the sake of the gospel and the, their profession of it. If you look over in Philippians chapter 3, uh, Paul's testimony itself is a good commentary on this. 
In Philippians chapter 3, and, and remember, beloved, these men sold everything. And the parables that our Lord teaches us here tonight, that th- these men sold everything. They just had to get that field. And because of the value of the treasure, they sold all their pearls because of that one pearl of great price. You see, men are made willing in the day of God's power. And Paul writes in Philippians chapter 3, in verse 8, he says there, Yea, doubtless, yea, doubtless, there's no doubt about it, I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung, and do count them but filthy rags, that I may win Christ. Filthy, ruined garbage, that I may win Christ. Verse 9, and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. And you know, we have examples of those who find this gospel treasure, and at that, unexpectedly. And so it seems with this man in the parable, we don't know why he was in this field, or for that matter, anything about the field. But he found something unexpected, for he found a treasure in that field. And the Samaritan woman, when she left her house that day with her water pot, do you think she left her home expecting to find the water of life? Of course not. <laughs> can you relate? <laughs> I certainly can. I certainly can. What about that Ethiopian eunuch? And remember, he's an example of someone who was seeking, like that man who was seeking goodly pearls. And then he found that one pearl of great price. He'd been to Jerusalem, and he's on his way home, and he has the word of God, and he's reading the gospel scroll of Isaiah. And we've got lots of examples in the scripture of sinners who fit the picture set forth in these parables. There's a few examples in this auditorium, I'm sure. (laughs) That, that fit the picture set forth in these parables. And so we see the value of the gospel in those first two parables. And secondly, we see the kingdom of God's reign pictured in the parable of the net. And that net, that, that net, you know, when, when you look at false religion, they never use a net, do they? They never use the, the net of the gospel. They use some lure and a hook. <laughs> God's ministers use a net. And the net they use is Christ and Him crucified. And that net gathered fish of every kind. And we see how that the parable of the net is identical for the most part to the parable of the wheat and the tares, which are not separated until the harvest time. And in that net, there was both good and bad fish, which are not separated until the net is brought into shore. And we have the same words. So shall it be at the end of the age. Look at verse 40. At the end of the parable of the wheat and the tares, it says, As therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be in the end of this world. And then, and, and then in verse 49, speaking of the net, So shall it be at the end of the world. The angels shall come forth and sever the wicked from among the just. And notice in both parables, the tares and the bad fish are cast into a furnace of fire. We read in verse 42, 
and shall cast the reprobate, the tares, into a furnace of fire, and there shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Now, in this last parable, we so that we might also learn from these words, in verse 47, our Lord declares, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a net that was cast into the sea and gathered of every kind. Beloved, the gospel is God's net, and it's cast out, and it gathers fish of every kind, a people of every nation, of every language, of every level of education and social standing, and it gathers every kind into the net. But some are good, and some are bad. And this is speaking here of the reign of the kingdom of heaven. And it's much like the church in these latter dispensation of days. And that speaks to the visible church because we know that in every visible church, every visible local church, there are some who are tares and some who are wheat. And beloved, we're not to try to discover who the tares are and who the wheat are. Rather, we just preach the gospel. But it will be revealed in the last day, in the end of the world, who the wheat are and who the tares are. One writer makes this observation, how that our Lord was saying, in effect, you yourselves, and he's intimating what the Lord said, in effect, to his disciples, you yourselves have seen your fellow disciples picking the good and discarding the bad. And one day that will be done once and for all by my angels at my command. The disciples certainly saw a net brought in and the disciples, some of the disciples were fishermen and they would sort the good fish from the bad fish. And so they clearly understood this illustration. And the Lord is, is telling them plainly, one day that will be done once and for all by my angels at my command. And the writer further observes, is the Lord not implying to his disciples, therefore, to warn men everywhere to repent? Repent, or you shall all likewise perish in view of the irreversible decisiveness of the coming judgment. And so, beloved, impress upon men the exceeding preciousness of the kingdom of heaven and the necessity for everyone to take possession of it here and now, because there's a day coming when the door will be shut and no one shall enter into the king, into his kingdom. Is the Lord not impressing these disciples to go out and preach and warn men everywhere? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And when they do, indeed when we do, beloved, by God's grace, we say with the Apostle Paul, what he writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. And I'll conclude with this portion. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning... In verse 14. Now thanks be unto God, which always causeth us to triumph in Christ and make manifest the savor of his knowledge by us in every place. For we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ in them that are saved and in them that perish. To the one we are the savor of death unto death and to the other the savor of life unto life. And who is sufficient for these things? For we are not as many which corrupt the word of God, 
but as of sincerity, but as of God, in the sight of God, speak we in Christ. Amen.